Open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1. I want to talk to you this morning, if you're looking at your notes, about this subject, this theme that many of us have heard, and, and, and I think some have some, some misunderstanding about, and, and I want to continue to give us some what I think is the correct view of this whole dynamic called baptism in the Holy Spirit. Depending upon your translation, the, the, the preposition uh, in can be also translated by or with. Uh, the Greek trans, uh, preposition is simply the two-little letter word in, and uh, it, it can be translated uh, as in, with, or by. So uh, don't be alarmed if your translation has a little bit different word in there. Uh, it's interesting, uh, because this is and has been historically... Uh, certainly in the American church. It has been a uh, subject of some controversy, uh, and uh, there's different views on the baptism, what, it all, what it's all about, and so forth. And given that uh, reality, it, it's surprising, I think, that there are just a limited number of places in the New Testament that even use the phrase, baptism in the Spirit. Uh, Would you have any idea of how many places you find that phrase in the New Testament? You were here Friday night. Quiet. (laughs) My helpmate. (laughs) Seven. Thank you, dear. This phrase, you only find it in seven places in the New Testament. You would think that it would be all over the New Testament. And uh, six of those places, six of those references to the baptism, they, they, they basically refer to the baptism which John the Baptist promised that the coming one would bring. Now, who is the coming one? Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist was the forerunner. And he said, there's one who's coming after me. So in contrast to John's water baptism... The coming one, or Jesus, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Okay? You see this reflected in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 8. And there are two parallel passages. I've given you the references, I think, in your notes. And uh, John, Mark records John's words. This is John the Baptist. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, see, that's, here's the question. What is that? What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Now, we've gone back and and we've studied baptism so that we understand what baptism is all about. And uh, baptism is this initiatory rite, if you will, that encompasses justification. It encompasses uh, becoming a child of God. It encompasses being born again and all those dynamics that we talked about in the past. Now, in John's Gospel... In chapter 1, I want you to notice verses 32 and 33. Now this is John the Evangelist who writes this gospel, and he is quoting John the Baptist. So I don't want you to get confused between the two Johns, all right? In verse 32, John the Evangelist says, When John the Baptist gave this testimony... I saw the Spirit coming down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. 
meaning Jesus. And this was at Jesus' baptism, remember, when he was baptized by John? And then the, the, the dove came down out of heaven and the voice said, this is my son whom I love and so forth. He says, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And so we have John's testimony and that phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, is in that phrase also. John says, In effect, I baptize with water, but one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So there are, right now, five passages. We see four of them in the Gospels. And now the fifth one, we see in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is very, very explicit. In fact, it's as explicit as the passage in the Gospel. And it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus reminds his disciples of the words of John the Baptist. And Jesus says, For John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So again, you see this continual reference to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And indeed, Jesus says, In a few days. And certainly, uh, the promise of Jesus was fulfilled a, a few days later. And what, when was that fulfilled? On the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the birth of the church. That's where the church came into existence. It's when the Holy Spirit, which had come down on Jesus, came down on Jesus' disciples in that upper room, filling them and enabling them, empowering them, and more particularly, uh, they received this ability to speak in other languages. Acts chapter 2, the first four verses, let me read to you. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so in that passage, we see this again, this other reference to them being filled. The sixth reference is in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, you have Peter explaining the incident back in chapter 10 of Acts with Cornelius. Now, who was Cornelius? Anybody remember? He is described as a God-fearing Gentile. He doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know about Jesus. He's, he fears in reverences and worships the God of Israel, Yahweh. All right? And so he's described as that. And so he's, he's uh, uh, a God-fearer. And so in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, Peter's explaining the incident with Cornelius to his critics in Jerusalem. Now, were the Jews and Gentiles on good terms with each other? No, no. Just like... The Jews and the Samaritans were not on good terms with one another. We saw that last week from Acts chapter 8. Do you recall? And so also in chapter 10, we see the conversion of Cornelius, or the Gentiles. And if you go back to Acts 11 with me, verse 15, Peter's explaining all that happened up there. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. 
So he's telling, he's telling the, 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 the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem, hey, I went down there. Now remember, Peter had had a vision. What, what was Peter's vision uh, that God gave him? Do you recall? Of a, of a sheet being lowered down from heaven, and on the sheet were all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, right, from a Jewish perspective. And then the Lord said, Peter, arise and eat, right? And Peter objected and said, Lord, I, I've never eaten an unclean animal. He's kept kosher. And then God says what? Yeah, he says, whatever I have, been ma- I have made clean, don't call unclean. Now, Peter doesn't make the connection until he gets to Cornelius and after he sees what happens with Cornelius. Wow. And so he's back in Jerusalem explaining all this to the Jews who have no clue that the Gentiles will be included. How like God, huh? To include the most unlikely people in his family. How many are glad for that? <laughs> uh, you know, you just sit there, you ponder. Sometimes you have to ponder, and say, oh man. You ever ask the question, why me? Why, how do I get in here? And so he's referring to this incident. Then he says in verse 16, Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And when they heard this, Peter's critics They had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has even, I love this, He has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Can you imagine imagine these guys in Jerusalem going, Whoa, even the Gentiles are in. They're already going through the Samaritan experience. God, is there no end to who you're going to let in your kingdom? So Peter, Peter, in referring to that incident, he's saying this is, this is significant. This is significant for the advance of God's agenda in his kingdom. And this is just as significant as the conversion of those Samaritans back in chapter 8. You see the kingdom of God continuing to advance, continuing to include All these people groups. The Gentile God-fearer Cornelius and his family had been grafted into God's family. And just as God had withheld his spirit from the Samaritans. Now why, why had God withheld his spirit? Why is it in that Samaritan conversion that it seems like their baptism in the spirit is kind of a second stage event? Why, why, we talked about that last time. Did anybody remember why? There had to be a reconciliation, right? Because the Jews, the, the Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans, and, and that, had, that had stemmed from uh, centuries before. And they'd existed up in, uh, in Samaria. They had their own worship, their own sacrifices, their own priesthood. And then down in Jerusalem, the Jews had their own. So they existed separately. If the Holy Spirit had come on the Samaritans instantly, immediately, upon the testimony 
then without that reconciliation, without Peter and John going up there and being the, 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 the validator, the seal, if you will, of that reconciliation, you'd had two churches, just like they had two, two groups of people gone on, separated. They'd have never found each other. So God doesn't give his spirit until these people are reconciled, then he gives his spirit. There's, there's, there's purpose for this. It isn't didn't, it didn't just that there's a, a second stage event, this baptism of the Holy Spirit comes after the conversion. No, there's a reason for God giving his spirit, delaying giving his spirit to the Samaritans. And just as he delayed there, he delays in giving his spirit to Cornelius and his family. Or I shouldn't say delay, he, he gives his spirit actually before Peter even finishes preaching his sermon. Which is astounding. Peter's preaching a sermon. He says, before I finished, before I could even talk to him about repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit fell on them, came down on them. So God gave his spirit to Cornelius' family. Why do you suppose that God gave his spirit to Cornelius' family before Peter even finished preaching? What is it? Well, it, that's good. So that Peter wouldn't think he had anything to do with it, but it's more than that, actually. Go back to Peter's vision. What was Peter's vision again? Yeah, don't call unclean what I've made clean. So Peter, being a Jew, is going to be what? He's going to distance himself from Gentiles. He didn't want to go to Cornelius' house. He's all in a quandary about this. He's got his own pride to deal with. He's got his own sense of superiority as a Jew. Gentiles were, were, were unclean, considered unclean. And so Peter, all traces of his prejudice, all traces of his spiritual uh, superiority had to be removed before. And this is the reason the Spirit was given Boom, right there, before he's even done speaking. He's going, whoa, man, what is going on here? Understand the context of these passages. And I think this is probably one of the great highlights in the book of Acts. These events surrounding the Samaritans and uh, the uh, Gentiles, where the Spirit of God breaks through, literally breaks through human prejudice. Human apartheid. We all have our biases. We all have our prejudices, don't we? And the Spirit of God breaks those down. You can't be a a Christian. You can't be growing in the Lord and still harbor prejudice and bias and those kinds of things. You just just can't. it's, It's antithetical to the unity of the body, to the unity of the spirit that God creates. That's why this is recorded a number of times. It's rehearsed. This is why Peter recognizes uh, the Gentile conversion as equivalent of Pentecost for the Gentiles. The Spirit came on them just like he came on us at the beginning. Jesus has baptized not only Jews, he's baptized not only Samaritans, but now he's baptized Gentiles with the Holy Spirit as promised by John. They're all in. God bless you. The gift was the same for all of them. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us. There is no distinction 
among those who have repented. No distinction among those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the same Spirit, baptizing each one into union with Christ. And so we see all these references saying and telling us, John baptizes water, but one coming after will baptize with the Spirit. And we see all these people groups baptize with the Spirit. And the point of that baptism is in union with Christ, in union with one another, one body. Are you with me? One body. Now those are the first six references. Four in the Gospels, two in the book of Acts. The seventh and final reference is found in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now all these references, may I suggest to you, present an unambiguous picture, a clear picture. And what is that clear picture? John baptized with water as a mark of what? Repentance. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit to bring people into the blessings of the new covenant. You don't get the blessings of the new covenant unless the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. This first began, became possible on the day of Pentecost when the disciples who had already submitted to John's baptism were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who baptized Jews who had walked with Jesus. It was the same Holy Spirit who, to the amazement of Peter, baptized Cornelius into Christ, also Cornelius, who either, neither knew Jesus or even knew about Jesus. He gives no indication he knows anything about Jesus. In both instances, baptism with the Spirit initiated people into the blessings of the new covenant. And in the, the exact same thing is taught in this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul writes this. He says, now he writes this to the Corinthians for a very specific reason. It, it, it when you understand the flow of thought in this, in this letter to the Corinthians, and as well in the 12th chapter, you appreciate much more why he says what he says when he says what he says. It's like when you and I are talking, you're talking to somebody and you have a point you want to make with them. You, 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 you march through your argument, right? And you lay a foundation. He's laying a foundation here. It's not he's just saying this stuff uh, without any context. But this is what he says in verse 13. He says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Could you get any clearer than that? Who baptized us? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit baptized into one body. The implication clearly is that we are, what? This, is, this happens at conversion, doesn't it? Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. In other words, there's no discrimination. All the, all the, 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 the biases and prejudices, God doesn't take them into account. He says, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Paul could hardly put it more plainly nor could he put it more confrontationally, if you will. He's confronting the Corinthians. He's confronting them not only on their prejudices, he's confronting them on their pride, their spiritual pride. For many of his readers prided themselves on their gifts, on the gifts of healing, the gifts of tongues, gift of faith, uh, gift of prophecy, and so forth, 
If you read the letter to the Corinthian church, you see that Paul, almost at every point in their experience, confronts them and corrects them. From the very beginning, when they were taking pride in, well, I'm of Apollos, and, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Peter, and, uh, and, and, and Paul confronts the divisions in the church. He confronts their attitude toward the communion table, and, and, and he says to them, this is why some of you are, are, are sick. This is why some of you are asleep and died, because you come to the communion table and you despise it. Uh, you come in an unworthy manner. You've not, you've not come in a, in, a, in, a, in a holy manner. And so he, he on and on. And, and then, then with spiritual gifts, he particularly addresses their pride in this area because they would be priding themselves on these gifts that they had and they would be despising others and they're setting themselves apart. I've got the goods. How they would have loved to claim that only the healers, only the prophets, only the tongue speakers were baptized with the Holy Spirit. An exclusive club. And he anticipates that. And, and he's apparently seen something of this or heard about them. And he demolishes that claim. He says, it is one spirit who enables us to make that baptismal confession. It is the one spirit, the only by the spirit, can we say Jesus is what? Lord. Lord. In chapter 12, verse 3. He sets it up. It's by one spirit the Holy Spirit, that we can even say this. We're all the same. Then he goes on in his argument to address uh, all these spiritual gifts. It is the one Spirit who baptizes believers into the one body, whatever the differences between us. The one baptism by the one Spirit is as decisive a unifying force as anything else you can imagine. It's as decisive as the one Father who inspires all of His children alike. We all look to the Father, don't we? It's as decisive, this work of the Holy Spirit is as decisive as the one Lord Jesus whom we all serve. The Corinthians were all baptized by the one Spirit into the one body. And, for good measure, Paul sees the Holy Spirit not only as the one who plunges them into Christ, but also as the one who is given to them as a cool drink of water. He adds this last phrase. He says, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. In other words, there's this refreshment to your life. It's like rain falling on parched ground. Oh, you just soak it up. It's like on a hot, hot day, you get a cool drink of water. What a marvelous picture. So there should be some refreshment, some considerable refreshment to our life. Now, all of this goes to these two points. Two very, very important theological considerations. Very important facts. Number one. Nowhere, nowhere are Christians subsequent to the day of Pentecost. Nowhere in the New Testament are Christians said to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost 
was the day. Pentecost was the anointing. Pentecost was the day when the Spirit came. Pentecost is the birth date of the church. Pentecost was when those first Jews became Christians, born-again believers. They'd had Jesus alongside them, and now they would have the Spirit of Jesus within them. You recall Jesus' words in John's Gospel? He's telling his disciples he's going to leave. And he says, uh, he says I'm a, it's necessary for me to go away, because if I don't go away, the Comforter won't come. When, he, when I go away, I'll send the Comforter, and he will come. You know him. He is with you, but he will be in you. And so when Jesus went, he sent the Comforter, and the Holy Spirit took up residence. And the gift of the Holy Spirit made on that first Sunday is always with us. He is always with us. Never to be withdrawn. Now some will look back in, in the psalm, Psalm 51, David cries out, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, right? Why does he pray that? He prays that because he'd seen God remove the Spirit from Saul. And David's, David's over his own sin, is fearful that God will remove his Spirit from him. Not so in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have God's Word says, Never will I leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Paul writes that, that we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment, as the seal of our redemption. He'll never leave us. He's been given to us, and we are sealed. You can exhale. You can go, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Mean even if I sin grievously and deliberately, he's not going. No, he's not going to take his holy. You don't have to sing. God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, because he's not going to. He's faithful. We've been sealed with his Spirit. Isn't that, isn't that glorious? He is always with us. The Holy Spirit is available for all who repent, all who believe, and all who are baptized into Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The converts on the day of Pentecost found this to be true. Peter preached his sermon. Luke records that the, the hearers were cut to the heart. They cried out to Peter, what must we do to be saved? Peter gives them a three-step formula, doesn't he? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter promised. They did repent, and they found out that Peter's promise was true. The two distinctive blessings of the new covenant were theirs all at once. What, beloved, are the two distinctive blessings of the new covenant? Forgiveness of sins. What does Peter tell us? Forgiveness of sins and the holy gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow, isn't that exciting? What more could we want? To be forgiven of all of our sins, all the guilt cleansed, the doors open for relationship with God, and His Spirit, the very Spirit of the living God, come and live within us. Wow, you can't ask for anything more than that. Cornelius found this found this to be true. The Corinthians found this to be true. And I suggest to you, Christians, every Christian down the century has found this to be true. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, 
Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. In other words, he's not a Christian. You're not born again. You're not a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. So baptism with the Holy Spirit, if I can summarize, is not a second stage experience for some Christians. It is an initiatory experience for all Christians. Are you tracking with me? And without that baptism with the Holy Spirit, we're not Christians at all. You must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you a Christian. That's what makes you a Christian. It's not just what you say. It's not just what you think. It's what God does when he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. It's an initiatory act of God to incorporate you into the body of Christ. Just like our water baptism is an initiatory statement initiating us into the church in a physical way. That's why we studied baptism. Now, the second important fact is this. What was the first important fact I shared with you? Anybody? Ivory, what was the, what was the first one? All right. Here's the second important fact. And, and this is, this is going to disturb some categories, I understand. Christians are never told. We are never told to wait or to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that many, many people have, over the years, you've been in churches, you've been taught this, so you've got to wait, you've got to pray, you've got to pray for the baptism. We are never told in the scriptures in the New Testament to wait or pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why are we told never to wait and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because we already have him. Isn't that great? Don't you love it? We already have him. And yet there are meetings where you have to wait and wait all night and pray for the Holy Spirit to come. No, you already got him. The original disciples were indeed told to wait in the upper room. This was pre-Pentecost. Jesus told them, go wait. This was before the distinctive experience of the Spirit of Jesus, internalized within the believer, was open to all people. Ever since Pentecost, there has been no need for Christians to wait for baptism with the Holy Spirit. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is our Christian starting point. It is not our goal. We already have the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're in, this is where we start from. And it's when the power of the Spirit, from day one, that you can begin to live your life and begin to serve the Lord and begin to realize what He has called you to both to be and to do. Amen? Amen. Now, next time, we're going to be talking about the experiences that people have had that seem to validate a second stage event. Are you, are you understand what I'm talking about? Because any number of us have experienced something like that. And so we think, well, but I was taught that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened when? 
at the very beginning. So what, is, what do I call this second thing that happened to me? We're going to talk about that next time. Aren't you excited? All right, so we do have a few minutes. If you have any questions about any of this up to this point.